Thank you for standing by, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to today's webinar. We have with us Mr. Nicholas Bonosis, President of Capital Link, organizer of the event. I must advise you that the webinar is being recorded today. We now pass the floor to Mr. Bonosis. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you very much and good morning to everyone and sorry for the brief delay to, to start today. This is Nicholas Bornois, President of Capital Link, and I would like to welcome you to the uh, Capital Link webinar series and to today's webinar. Today's webinar will feature Reeves Asset Management on the topic of opportunities in listed infrastructure. A very interesting uh, topic. We're delighted to have with us our feature presenters from Reeves Asset Management. Ronald Sorensen, Chairman, Chief Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager, and also John Bartlett, Vice President, Portfolio Manager, Electric and Gas Utility Research. The moderator for today will be Dennis Emanuel, Director of Closed-End Funds at Alps Portfolio Solutions. This event is accessible through a live audio webcast and then will also be available as an audio archive through www.capitallinkwebinars.com. There will be a Q&A session during the presentation, after the presentation. Webinar participants can submit questions through the special button on the event page titled Submit a Question or email them to us at questions at capitallinkwebinars.com. You can submit questions at any time during the event and your questions will be answered uh, when we come into the Q&A session. The opinions expressed by the presenters are not intended as legal or investment advice or advice of any kind, as a matter of fact, and are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and Catalink bears no responsibility for them. Furthermore, today's presentation and webinar may contain forward-looking statements concerning future events. Our next webinar will be on Tuesday, September 19, at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, featuring Tecurium Trading, LLC. For more information, please visit CapitalLinkWebinars.com. And now I will pass the floor to Dennis. Dennis, please go ahead. Thank you, Nicholas, and thank you for giving me this opportunity. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today to discuss the infrastructure market. Uh, as Nicholas said, my name is Dennis Emanuel. I work with Alps, um, Director of ETF and Closed-End Fund Strategy. With me today are the portfolio managers that Nicholas mentioned from Reeves Asset Management, Ron Sorensen, CEO and CIO of Reeves, as well as John Bartlett. Now, in this webinar, we're going to talk about infrastructure assets. We'll define them, we'll talk about their attributes, and give you a sense of why Reeves believes there is opportunity in this space. We're then going to go on to talk about UTG, its strategy and performance. UTG is the closed-end fund managed by Reeves Asset Management. And then to wrap up, we will discuss the terms of the rights offering that the fund is currently conducting. So we're going to start off with Ron. Ron, can you tell us a little bit about Reeves and why you're so favorable on this space? Yeah, uh, good morning, and uh, thank you, Dennis. Um, I hope that uh, when we finished here, uh, you have a conviction that uh, <clears throat> experience counts and uh, that, that Reeves has experience. The firm was founded as a research boutique 56 years ago in 1961. Uh, the focus at that time was utilities, and there was, if you remember, there was one telephone company, AT&T. Uh, these companies weren't uh, defined as infrastructure at that point uh, in time, but they've come to be defined as uh, infrastructure. And 
the firm has been a manager of institutional portfolios since 1978, and our client uh, bases included defined benefit plans, sovereign wealth funds, endowments, foundations, insurance companies, separately managed accounts, and of course a closed-end fund. And our investment philosophy, style, and process has been consistently applied with respect to meeting the objectives for this broad range of clients. <clears throat> and what I'd like to, you know, emphasize in, in, in terms of our uh, uh, philosophy is that uh, we try to be, a, we've striven very hard to be a true agent for all our clients. We do not try to be all things to all people in the investment world, and we have um, focused our research and investment efforts in, in what is the uh, infrastructure universe that we'll, we'll talk about uh, today. And, you know, the companies that we're looking at provide non-discretionary products and services. They tend to be large mid-cap companies. Uh, importantly, they have a history of profitability, and throughout our history, we have had a focus on companies that pay dividends and have the ability and a commitment to periodic, periodically raise their dividends. Another thing that uh, aspect of our process is that we rely on in-house research. Uh, good ideas, we consider them to be valuable and uh, that we would like to always generate our own research and use ideas that haven't been exploited by someone else. Relative value is an important factor in our investment decisions, and uh, you, you can uh, get an insight into uh, our ability to manage utilities uh, by perhaps by looking at uh, UTES, which is our actively managed uh, ETF. Uh, to help you remember, anybody seen my cousin Vizzy, Vinny, uh, Joe Pesci spoke at great length about youths. The fact that we're an employee firm, that means uh, that what this means for clients is that we survive as long as we survive as, and satisfy our clients' investment objectives. If we could turn to uh, page three, <clears throat> um, the, the, the heading here is why Reeves likes listed infrastructure investments. I would like to answer, uh, add one more word now, and remind you that, that we have always been here, even when infrastructure uh, was, was not as uh, highly regarded an invested sector as it is now. Uh, why is uh, infrastructure uh, why are infrastructure investments a good investment now? Well, first of all, uh, we have aging infrastructure in the U.S. That means old pipes, old wires that have to be replaced, that have to be modernized. Uh, and there is a deployment of a lot of new technologies which are driving capital uh, investment. And if you think about uh, wind and solar, it requires a significant technological investment to be able to integrate the those sources of power in, into the into the grid. Another important consideration at this point in time, in point in time, with respect to the sectors, is uh, we see favorable and imp and improving U.S. regulatory environment. 
uh, principal regulators we, we, we deal with are the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and obviously the Environmental Protection Agency is omnipresent. And uh, I'd like you to think about uh, regulation as the equivalent of uh, political risk. You have to understand it and grant it correctly if your investments are, you know, are going to yield the kind of returns uh, that you like. And uh, my uh, partner, John Bardman, will provide some more specific comments with respect to uh, when he's speaking about uh, utilities and regulation. Um, the dividend yields, uh, we, we make the point here that they're, they're uh, attractive relative to other equity and fixed income options. Uh, to be specific, uh, we watch pay close attention to the 10-year treasury, treasury, which is currently yielding 2.07%. By the way, 18 months ago, it was yielding 2.2%. Uh, the spider yields 1.87%, and the XLU equals 3.1%. Now, to give you uh, our view with respect to what's happened to the uh, investment climate, 18 months ago when the 10-year Treasury was at 2.2 percent, uh, I, I believe the collective wisdom was that there were going to be multiple uh, rate increases by the Federal Reserve, the uh, yield curve was going to steepen, and the uh, yield on the 10-year Treasury was going to rise. Um, that has not taken place. Uh, the yield curve has actually flattened. The 10-year Treasury is now at 2.07%. Uh, and this, in our view, this represents a very favorable uh, investment climate uh, for the uh, relatively higher-yielding infrastructure investments in our portfolios. We talked about uh, defensive qualities providing downside protection. Uh, well, what we view as a defensive quality is a high and rising dividend yield. Um, earnings for these companies tend to be relatively recession uh, resistant. And in investors' mind, uh, they often consider to be risk-off uh, investments. Uh, we point to the fact that uh, there's ease of entry and exit in the uh, sector because of the liquidity derived from the large and mid-cap companies in the sectors. Um, just to give you a couple of examples, uh, in the electric space, Nextera um, has a $70 billion market cap. Uh, Atmos Energy Gas Utilities, $9 billion. In the cable space, Comcast is $191 billion market cap. Uh, American Waterworks in the water sector is $14 billion. And the Union Pacific uh, Railroad is approximately uh, $80 billion. And at the same time, all these companies have a very robust history of dividend growth. Uh, for example, uh, the five-year annualized dividend growth for uh, next year is 10.4%, Atmos 5.5%, Comcast 14%, 10.3% for American Waterworks and UNP is around 15%. So remember, those are five-year annualized dividend growth rates. If we could turn to page four, uh, with respect to uh, the definite, uh, 
definition of infrastructure. Uh, you know, where we, we've been here since 1961, uh, but the investable universe has expanded greatly, uh, you know, with the technological change uh, faced by the industries invest in, and not the least of which was the, uh, you know, the breakup of AT&T into the regional belts. Uh, with respect to infrastructure, uh, we believe uh, they're asset-intensive businesses, such as the electric power grid. And uh, I just mentioned briefly once before, a lot of advanced technology is required to, to manage the integration of wind and solar uh, into the existing uh, grid system. Uh, and obviously, infrastructure includes natural gas pipelines, uh, fiber optic networks. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, they were not available in, in an available investment space. Uh, one, one area of infrastructure that's particularly robust is the wireless towers and, of course, transportation systems. Um, if we go to page five, we, we, we have a table setting out, you know, types of infrastructure uh, assets. Uh, obviously, we don't uh, try to invest uh, everywhere, but uh, on the, and the, the two right-hand columns is, the, you know, the, the, the focus of most of our research and, and investment efforts. And the, uh, just a footnote, the gas, oil, and gathering and processing includes uh, MLPs, uh, communication services uh, uh, is particularly uh, cable, uh, provides very robust investment opportunities, and then of course interstate rail uh, would be uh, Union Pacific Railroad and the other railroads. If we turn to page six, I'll touch briefly on the investment uh, attributes of uh, infrastructure investments. Very importantly, the companies own long-lived assets. <clears throat> now, uh, there's two aspects of that. First of all, given that the assets have long lives, uh, the in terms of managing their capital uh, expenditure planning, the companies have to have long-term visibility with respect to their needs. And as John will emphasize, it's the uh, investment uh, in the assets of the companies which drive EPS growth over time. Uh, I won't hit every point here, but uh, we touched earlier on the predictable, reliable cash flows and earnings, uh, the higher dividend yields. Uh, now, dividend growth uh, is an extremely important factor in our valuation of a, of a desirable infrastructure investment. At the present time in the utility space, Payout ratios are 60 to 70 uh, percent, um, but that provides room for the for the uh, solid utilities that, that we select to continue predictably growing their dividends over a multi-year period. The uh, examples of organic growth opportunities for many of the companies would, in the simplest possible term, would be a, a you know a utility replacing coal-fired generation with gas-fired generation. Um, and then uh, another organic opportunity in the uh, communication space would be the increased demand for broadband requires investment in additional uh, 
cable and support and communication services. Uh, with respect to uh, pricing, in many cases, prices are indexed to inflation for essential services. And to you know, give you one example, uh, in the tower space, uh, contracts are uh, have automatic price escalators, uh, which kick in over time. Uh, it's my uh, privilege now to turn the um, conversation over to John Bartlett. We'll go to page seven, uh, where John will speak about the uh, regulatory compact. Thank you, John. Ron, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to kick off by talking about the basics of regulation. I'm going to try to keep this fairly high level and, and outside of um, getting too, too much in the weeds, but I'm certainly happy to do that as we get into the, uh, the Q&A. Let me begin by saying that understanding regulation is critical to following this industry. In, in a lot of ways, it's, uh, it's a lot like following two separate companies for, for each that you cover, um, because not only do you have to cover the operations of the, uh, of the company, but you have to follow the comings and goings of, uh, of what's going on at the local commission or, or, or the regulator. <clears throat> Regulated utilities um, are deemed to be a natural monopoly, and that's a, that's a very important concept. Uh, it, it's really sprung out of the notion that no one really benefits if you have two sets of wires or two sets of gas mains going down the street. And so as a consequence of that, utilities um, are deemed to have gotten into what's called what we call the regulatory compact. On one hand, uh, utilities are granted franchise rights over a particular service territory. And they do that um, with the obligation to serve everybody in the area. In exchange for that, they subject themselves to price regulation um, and, the, uh, and the support of a, uh, of, a, of a state regulatory commission. Regulation is based on the amount that utilities have invested in the ground. The commission allows them um, a, uh, a specific return, and that's generally driven by what's going on at the, uh, at the, at the capital, in the capital markets. They dictate a specific capital structure um, telling the utility really how much debt they should take on as, as, as part of their investment. And then they set up rates which should allow them, not guarantee them, the ability to uh, earn a return and recover their costs. And in, in recovering their costs, it's also um, depreciation of the, uh, of the assets they, they have in the ground. So it's a, it's a return on capital and it's a return of capital. Um, there are really two basic ramifications of that that I think are lost on a, on a lot of investors. The first is that higher capital spending is good for utilities. In, in a lot of different industries, when a, when a company is forced to raise its capital expenditure budget, um, unless that's generating incremental revenues or something like that, it's often deemed to be bad. Here, um, a well-managed utility should be able to uh, increase investment in its, in its own company and hopefully uh, get uh, what we call contemporaneous, that is, returns um, at, the, uh, at, at the same time. The other thing that's important to remember, too, is that in the end, net income really matters for these companies. In your typical industrial company, um, there's a lot of focus on, on cash flow. But here, the income statement is largely turned upside down. Remember what I said. Companies sink money into the ground. They, uh, they're told how they should uh, capitalize it. 
And then uh, the first calculation that happens uh, in the income statement is what is the appropriate net income that this, sh this company should be allowed to earn? You then work your way up the income statement, and the very last thing that's calculated um, is the actual price that, that the customer, customers pay. And that's obviously, you know, when you look at a, a, a company that's in the manufacturing business, the industrial business, the very first thing that they start out is with what, what is the price uh, that the customer should pay. For utilities, that's really the, uh, the last calculation in the, in the rate-making process. Uh, rates can be reset automatically, and I'll talk a little bit more uh, about that as, uh, as I get into some of the specific um, industry groups within in utilities. But in general terms, rates are set through an adjudicated court case, which we refer to as general rate case. Um, the, uh, the utility commission sits as judge and jury. The, uh, you know, all, all sides to the, uh, to the argument are allowed to present their case, that is, the utilities themselves consumer advocates, industrial customers, basically anybody who has standing, like any other court case, um, can, can make a filing and, uh, and, and, and participate. Generally, though that process takes uh, about six months, though it can take a little less than that. Um, sometimes it takes as much as, as a year. In some jurisdictions, it's, uh, it's taken, uh, taken even longer. So, you know, to bring this all together, uh, companies are valued largely um, on their dividends um, and their earnings, as well as the, uh, the credit quality of, of, of both of those things. So let me just talk about what we view as important when we look at regulation. And for that, I'd like to ask everyone to turn to uh, slide eight. What we like um, is pretty straightforward. We like utilities that can give public victories to their regulators. And what do we mean by that? Well, um, you know, I think it's generally thought that uh, everybody likes low prices, regulators included. That is true, but what's more important are stable rates. And we like utilities that can give uh, rate stability to their regulators to keep everybody involved out of the newspaper. Um, if a utility um, has the ability to cut costs, uh, the utility that can manage their expenses in such a way so they don't have to just turn right around and ask for a rate increase, uh, that's, that's the sort of situation that I think everybody involved is, uh, is, is looking for. Um, we like rate settlements. We like companies that can stay out of general rate cases. We believe that you know, opening um, general rate cases to, to settlement discussions makes everybody um, work very diligently to get the best outcome. And, and you know, I'll just say colloquially, the best sign of a good deal is that everybody leaves equally unhappy. Um, and that's, that's the sort of outcome um, that we look for. What makes that possible? Um, in, in my opinion, especially in, in the current climate, utilities have to earn the right to grow. And that is, if they're growing their rate base, that is their investment balance uh, year on year, the only way to continue to um, ask for regular rate increases is to continue to cut their costs. And Ron kind of got into this a little bit um, during, his, uh, uh, during his remarks. There are a number of things that utilities can do. They can deploy technology, they can replace generation, they can lower their fuel expense, they can increase efficiency. All of these things um, go to cutting utility costs. And to the extent that uh, costs are cut um, by putting new infrastructure in the ground, it allows earnings to go up and everybody wins. So those, those are the sorts of things that, uh, um, that we look at. As far as uh, regulatory jurisdictions themselves go, uh, we like regulators that are knowledgeable, and we like regulators that are very much engaged in the process. We like our companies uh, to be pushed 
towards low cost and towards excellence. And everybody wants a well-managed company, and I think uh, regulators can uh, can really drive companies uh, to that. And, and we can talk about some examples about that uh, about that later. Some states do that particularly well, um, some not so much. We also like regulators who uh, who understand capital markets and understand that um, missteps can be very expensive, and that capital markets um, have uh, have very long memories. What we don't like. Um, well, as I mentioned before, we don't like utilities who appear in the local newspaper. Um, we don't like confrontations, and we don't like public controversy. Um, sometimes they're uh, unavoidable. They happen, and the best companies can deal with them uh, quickly and efficiently. Um, we don't like sweetheart deals. Um, if a deal that a, a company strikes with regulators strikes us as patently unfairly skewed towards the benefit of the utility, um, we are... Uh, likely to be uh, dissuaded by that. In the end, uh, you know, all things do revert to the mean as far as utility costs go. The, the story here isn't that complicated. Um, so it's not just a matter of, of you know, re reverting to normal or unwinding, um, but once it does that, it often leaves a, an unsavory taste in everybody's mouth, and that can, that can taint the regular, regulatory process going forward. So again, we, we, we pay very closely to uh, uh, to deals that are too good to be true, because generally they are. Um, so what do we have today? Uh, we have low interest rates, as Ron mentioned. Uh, we have low commodity prices, uh, particularly in, uh, in natural gas, which is, which is more important. Uh, the oil prices are low, too. Um, and the argument I make to a lot of regulators when I speak to them, I say, listen, you know, if you have to do work on your system at some point in the next 10 years, what are you waiting for? Um, because how are you going to justify the increased expenditure to, to your ratepayers when the price of natural gas is higher or if the, if the cost of interest is higher? The time to do it now is now, and I think, uh, I think most regulators uh, really do appreciate that. Hey, so, hey John, let me yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to stop you for a second. I have a question here in regards to what you're saying, and uh, for everyone else, uh, you can enter in your own questions on the uh, registration um, site. You can enter a question in there. We'll get to it. But we're talking about regulators and jurisdictions. It seems like, I don't know if the word is that you're at the mercy of them, but when we talk about these rate cases, is there a way to determine, you know, what's favorable? What is a favorable jurisdiction versus non-favorable? Is, is there any regional aspect? Would you stay away from a particular jurisdiction if you think they take too long, they're not as engaged as you had mentioned, well-informed? Can you just make some comments? Sure. Uh, yeah, let me begin at a high level I, to begin with. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, utilities are all um, at very much at the mercy of, uh, of their regulators and, uh, you know, very much at the mercy of their customers. I, I think all industrial concerns are kind of like that anyway. Um, and the notion that you can run roughshod over your customers is, uh, um, you know, really has no place in the utility business or any other business uh, for that matter. So having said that, what do we view as good um, and what do we view as, as, as bad? Um, you know, I, I kind of go back to what we said before. You know, for us, uh, a state utility commission, that, the word we use is constructive, um, that can um, understand the needs of the service territory, understand that the value um, that incremental spending of a utility can be used and brought to bear to benefit the customer and lower cost. Um, to the extent that that's understood and, and part of a larger, uh, larger piece of policy, um, that's terrific. We also, uh, we also like transparency. Um, you know, regulatory jurisdictions that have very firm 
um, policies in place. They have very firm um, regulatory structures in place that uh, are carried out in a transparent fashion by regulators and their staff. And those are all good things. What we don't like are commissions that behave in an arbitrary manner. Uh, the legal term for you lawyers out there is arbitrary and capricious, and and when a uh, when a utility commission gets brought to court, uh, that's often what they get tarred with, and that happens. Um, you know there is uh, there is recourse for a utility that's being treated unfairly. They are uh, they are mandated to be able to recover their costs, and so it is technically illegal for a state utility commission to drive um, a utility into bankruptcy, though that has happened. Um, anyway. Um, we also, you know, are on, very much on guard for uh, utility commissions that have a propensity to make bad choices. Curiously enough, uh, low rates of return does not necessarily equal um, low rates for customers, and you will find that some of the lowest return jurisdictions, um, the lowest return jurisdictions in the country perversely have some of the highest rates. So uh, there's not a, you know, the key is, is the, is the state encouraging investment? Do they value uh, business development? And uh, do they look to this as a, uh, you know, a part of developing the, the overall state economy? That was great. Um, so uh, thanks for you know, summing that up there and going into a little more detail. And again, if anyone has a question, please feel free. Enter it in on the website, and we'll get to it as soon as we can. Sure, Dennis. Let me just go. I only answered about half of your question there, so let me let me just continue for a second. And and, and no, because because it's, it's an important uh, it's it's important. Um, you know, there are just to get onto your question about regions of the country, in particular states that we we, we like and we don't like. Um, to us, you know, whether or not a state utility commission is is constructive. Now that's step one. Um, really, step two, and, and per, perhaps the more important. Is the rate of change right? And which which direction are are things going? Are things improving or or, or getting worse? Um, broadly speaking, uh, the Midwest is uh, generally got pretty good regulatory jurisdictions, and that's really underpinned by the fact that they need to spend the money. Um, Michigan, Wisconsin, both very strong, both states with aging infrastructure, and the money needs to be spent there. The Southeast is very pro business. Uh, they're very pro, uh, pro development and they understand that bringing new businesses to their states often requires, um, a good bit of, uh, of, of, of utility investment. So, so the, the story there is, is, is quite good. Um, I would say that, uh, the, uh, state of California has very, uh, very transparent, um, very solid regulation, though they've kind of hit a few bumps here in the, uh, in the last six months. So, you know, maybe we're not quite as excited as we were about them um, a, a year ago. And then I would say the Northeast, um, you know, really does vary. You know, I would say the state of New York is probably the most punitive uh, state utility commission in the country. Uh, they uh, earned the prize for, for lowest rates of return. And, um, you know, I'll, uh, I'll let uh, the locals there draw their own conclusions of how, uh, how their service is. So um, that would be kind of my lay of the land there. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Um, just turning to electric utilities, as I mentioned, uh, and I'm now on slide nine, um, aging transmission and distribution systems, it's a very big deal. Uh, as I mentioned a minute ago, it's, a, it's an acute uh, issue in, uh, in Michigan especially, and there are other, the state there is very, um, very receptive to the notion that those, uh, those um, those companies need to continue to 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 make improvements, and there's a there, that relationship is working out very well. Um, but beyond just simply renovation, 
We also have the issue of new types of generation that are being plugged into the electric grid. And we also have the opportunity for new technology to also be hung from the grid. And uh, that is not just getting new meters for people um, to get rid of uh, meter readers, uh, but it's also using new systems to enhance reliability and enhance uh, efficiency of the system. Again, that's another opportunity for um, you know utilities to spend money and have a very clear value proposition to the to the ratepayer. At the same time, we're also incorporating um, new types of renewable energy to the system. I think the one that probably most folks are familiar with is rooftop solar. That's a very big deal in uh, in California, particularly, uh, where they really made the uh, the decision to give people the incentive to put solar up on their roof. Uh, that is going to require new new levels of technology for all the California utilities that are going to require um, two-way uh, two-way distribution of electric power. That's something that exists on the transmission backbone, but but hasn't really been done um, on the distribution grid, and that and that's a, that's a work in progress. We also have um, wind and solar at the utility scale as well. Um, wind is uh, is a very interesting phenomenon right now. The uh, the prices continue to go down, and for areas west of the Mississippi but east of the Rockies, you can buy wind power under 10-year contract for meaningfully less than the natural gas strip suggests. So if you were generating power and you wanted to lock up 10 years of natural gas, um, it would be more expensive than buying wind power. At the same time, um, because the price of, of wind continues to go down, its economic viability continues to march its way east. Um, it's economically viable in places like Michigan. Um, it's economically viable in, in places like Maine. Not as much in, say, the uh, Mid-Atlantic region, um, but as a consequence of all of these places along the periphery developing more and more economic wind, um, we can get that power to market through a longer extension cord, and that requires uh, high-voltage transmission. And that's that's really, I think, uh, something that's slowed down a bit over the last couple of years, but there's real opportunity for that to um, um, to ramp up again. Uh, renewable re uh, generation, it's important to remember, um, does not provide standby capacity. Um, it's what we call an intermittent resource, and I think what some portion of the population doesn't fully appreciate is that electric demand at any given moment in time always has to equal supply. Um, there is no real bulk storage out there, but that may be changing. Um, some utilities are seeing the economic value of putting um, battery power storage on their uh, um, on their distribution grid. Whether or not we get to a place where we can do it for bulk transmission sort of remains to be seen. But batteries um, really are an incredibly disruptive technology, and if we ever get the price right, um, it's going to make a, a big deal, and it's going to be a, a real investment opportunity for utilities. Um, so, you know, just kind of going down the list of things that are going on, obviously the, the opportunities here for electric utilities are ample. The good news also is that we have a very supportive regulatory climate, which I've, I've sort of talked about, and, and obviously we've got uh, low natural gas prices and, uh, and, and, um, and low interest rates. So with that, I'm going to just turn everybody to, to slide 10 and, and talk for a minute about natural gas utilities. Um, natural gas utilities right now, uh, the distribution utilities, are in the process of undergoing major renovation. Um, a lot of these systems are very old, um, some of which actually predate the Civil War. Um, and uh, utilities are embarking on very long multi-decade programs 
to replace cast iron and bare steel pipe um, because the you know the the the, uh, the tenor of all of these projects are multi-decade in length. Utilities um, and their regulators have sort of come to the realization that they can embark on these projects and don't need to have to go back um, every year for a general rate increase, a uh, general rate case to get the rates increased. Instead, a lot of these, a lot of states have set up mechanisms by which the utility can put assets in the ground and spend the money and collect the invoices and adjust rates automatically year on and year out, and then maybe after four to five years, then go in for a general rate, uh, general rate case and true everything up. And so that's, that's really a terrific value proposition for, um, for the utilities because you know, obviously they spend the money and they get the, uh, the recovery at the same time. So the, the return on, on the marginal dollar of, of capital invested is really quite high relative to other types of big projects where we talk, often talk about regulatory lag. That is, utility builds it, it goes into its rate base, but they don't recover the investment until uh, they get through the, the whole court process. Um, so as a consequence of all that, there, you know, a lot of these utilities are, are, are growing at a very good clip, um, but more importantly, they've got a, a great visibility of, of, of backlog for, for further spending. Um, and then lastly, you know, uh, these companies have been getting consolidated into other uh, electric utilities. Electric utilities are generally larger, and um, uh, utilities of, gas utilities have been bought so that the larger companies can enhance their growth trajectory. The water industry, and now I'm on uh, slide 11, that's in a, in essentially the gas business on steroids. Why? Because the investment need is much bigger. The gas business is more capital intensive than, I'm sorry, the water business is more capital intensive um, than, the, uh, than the gas business, and the infrastructure has much higher needs for, uh, um, for reinvestment. We think the water companies are, are very attractive. And we would point to a couple of things. They're obviously very busy uh, replacing and improving their own systems, but we think over the coming years they're going to be increasingly interested in investing in um, municipal water systems. There are about 50,000 municipally owned water systems in the United States that don't have the financial resources to uh, to come up to uh, EPA requirements. In, in states like New Jersey, they've they've recently passed legislation saying. Listen, all of, all of the towns out there have to get to uh, EPA regulations or they have to do something else like sell, and uh, they're providing incentives in order to do so. So, um, it's again, it's a very strong story and it's a very long dated story. Let me turn on now to, uh, to communications. Um, there are a number of things that we're really very focused on, in it, and, and a lot of this probably isn't new to people. There's a, yeah, technological innovation has been um, um, very, really just astounding in, in communications really over the last 10 years, if not longer. Um, enterprises are moving to cloud-based computing. Uh, you know, we now are all using uh, considerably more video streaming on our, on our handheld phones. Um, all of this requires more uh, capital investment from uh, fiber networks and data centers. We like Metro Fiber, and if you think about you know, the bandwidth requirements of, uh, of autonomous vehicles. Yes, uh, there is a wireless story there, but underlying all of that is, a, uh, is an increased need for, uh, for more local fiber. Um, we, we also like the tower companies just for that very same reason. Um, again, there is a, a lot more bandwidth, a lot more spectrum that's been uh, made available to the wireless networks. 
Um, all of the companies are going to need to hang more uh, more electronics from these towers, and uh, we, we see recurring revenue increases um, for these for these companies. And then lastly, I'll just uh, talk about uh, cable. Uh, our, uh, our, our our cable analyst often quits that it's great to be a cable company, and and, and I tend to agree. Um, all of these companies now are increasing their uh, broadband services to customers. They're they're lowering their reliance on uh, video revenues, and as a consequence, their margins are going up um, just by by shifting from from one business to to the other. And I'd also say too, just in, in, in as a parting uh, comment, that uh, under the current administration, we've seen considerable uh, relaxation of regulation. So we think we think the outlook for the cable companies uh, remains very strong. I'll move uh, quickly to uh, energy here on, on slide 13. Um, you know, obviously, we've, uh, we've found a considerable amount of oil and gas um, in uh, places that were heretofore uneconomic. Uh, production is, is, has outpaced um, infrastructure in a number of different regions, and we see, that, uh, we see that continuing. Also, the way we use natural gas has, uh, has changed. There's more natural gas now needed in the southeast to fire uh, gas fire generation. We're uh, opening up LNG export markets, and so again, new infrastructure is going to be uh, required for that. On top of all of that, has been a uh, precipitous decline in the price of oil. Although things have kind of uh, been marching up and down here fairly recently, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of oil taint has hit a lot of these companies unfairly, and we think that there are a lot of uh, pipeline opportunities and, and midstream opportunities. Uh, that look a whole lot more like um, uh, like utilities than they do upstream E and P. Um, so with that, I'll uh, Dennis, I'll turn it back to you, and uh, you can talk a little bit about the Reeves Utility Income Fund. Sure. Unless you want to uh, hit some questions. Well, here. you know what? Someone did. Um, well, you were just on energy there. A question did come in about um, the out Reeves outlook for oil prices and, and natural gas prices. If you could make some sort of comment there. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll talk about uh, I'll talk about both. Um, you know, we we certainly respect. And understand that uh, you know the oil and natural gas markets are, are very broad and very deep and uh, and a whole lot bigger than us. Um, so we tend to to really try to um, have a good understanding of what the supply demand balance is, but we also take our cues from what's going on in in, in the market as well. Um, in our opinion, uh, natural gas is very plentiful in this country. Um, we're going to continue to uh, expand the capability not only of the infrastructure. Um, but also the uh, the productive capacity, and so the price of natural gas is about three dollars, and and we don't really see it uh, getting too much above that. Um, as far as oil goes, uh, we think it's it's too cheap um, at uh, at a, just under uh, fifty dollars. Um, you know what the current level of inventory suggests to us that it you know if it passed is uh, it passes prelude, which it often is not. Uh, the price of oil should probably be closer to sixty dollars than uh, than fifty dollars, but. Uh, um, so, you know, basically speaking, you know, we're not, uh, uh, we don't, we don't pretend to be the axe on oil, but, uh, but we do believe that the, the price of, uh, of, of, of oil has an upward bias. Thank you. Well, uh, guys, thanks for that overview of the uh, infrastructure markets. Uh, I want to take a, a minute or two here to talk about the Reeves Utility Income Fund. The ticket symbol is UTG. Now, this is a closed-end fund, and if we look at uh, slide 15, let's just quickly, for those that aren't familiar with them, let's you know, some of the advantages of closed-end funds, and I'm not going to go over each one of these things. I really want to hit, like, two or three that I find, you know, I think are critical. And the first one would be that first bullet point there, stable pool of assets. Unlike an open-end fund, 
Closed on fund assets are stable. So this gives actually gives a portfolio manager a lot more flexibility. There are no flows in and out. You don't have to put money to work in a market that you think is maybe a little too pricey. You don't have to uh, keep cash on hand for redemptions. Uh, closed and fund is bought and sold on the exchange all day long. You have that intraday liquidity. You can even put uh, you know price limits on your orders. Uh, so so there is there are some advantages to it there. Um, the third bullet point I think is um, a big distinction between open end funds and closed end funds: the ability to use leverage. Now, leverage in itself, adding leverage to a portfolio will add risk. A leveraged portfolio versus the same exact portfolio unleveraged is going to be a little riskier. But a prudent use of leverage can enhance your yield and potentially enhance your total return. So that is definitely a, a big difference between open-end and closed-end. And the other thing, that next to last bullet there, the opportunity to purchase a closed-end fund below net asset value. When you buy an open-end fund, you're buying it at NAV. Closed-end funds often, the vast majority of closed-end funds, trade below net asset value. So there's the ability to get it below the value there. And I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying buying it at a discount automatically means it's a bargain, that it's cheap. That's not the case. When you look at a fund's discount, please, you have to look at it in historical perspective. You've got to put it into perspective where it is traded historically to where it currently is. And you also have to look at where that current discount is relative to similar funds, its peer group. So let's talk on slide uh, 16, the Reeves Utility Income Fund. This is a utility fund. 80% uh, of the assets will be in the utility space. And within utilities defined in the prospectus uh, will also be the communications industry. So it will always be at least 80% uh, in traditional utilities as well as telecom. That other 20% bucket will fall into stuff like John was talking about, energy. So energy companies, pipelines. Um, you, you see the stats there as of June 30th uh, at the time, trading at a slight premium. You had a yield of 560 uh, assets in the neighborhood of around $1.5 But if we go to the performance on page 17, we can see, middle of the page, through the end of July, year-to-date return, 19.1% on price, 12.8% on NAV. Right above that, what I want to point out is since inception. Now, inception you can see is February of 2004. So for, call it 13 and a half years, this fund has generated roughly 12% on price and NAV on an annual basis. Another thing I want to point out, I'm going to go back to slide 16 for a second. You see the current price at, at June, right, the end of June, 34.34 and the NAV of 33.99. This fund came out in 2004 at $20. That was the IPO level. So it's not uncommon, but there are not many closed-end funds that trade above, that are currently trading above IPO level on the price and the NAV. Most of them that are have come out very recently and are mostly of the target term trust variety. But keep in mind, this fund came out in 2004, so it went through the financial crisis, and it is still substantially above the original price and the original NAV. Now let's move to slide 18, and I want to talk about the rights offering. This is very important, especially to current shareholders of UTG. All right, the fund's in the midst of a rights offering, which began basically yesterday, and will conclude on October 4th at the close of business. Now, shareholders of UTG on August 30th, that was the record date, shareholders of record on August 30th will receive one right for every share of UTG that they own. 
It'll take three rights to purchase additional shares at the subscription price. And at a subscription price, the formula for that will be one of the following here. It's going to be the lower of either 95% of the NAV at the conclusion of the day on October 4th or 95% of the average closing market price on the five trading days preceding October 4th. So September 27th, 28th, 29th, October 2nd, and October 3rd. We will take the lower of each. Now, traditionally, a, a regular rights offering, an investor has two options. You either subscribe to the rights or you do nothing. We purposely structured this as a transferable rights offering. So the rights will trade on the exchange. The ticker symbol is UTGRT. We purposely did that so that there is value. We wanted to give the shareholders an additional option. If they do not want to participate in the offering and subscribe for more shares, they can sell the rights. The rights have value. They can receive some sort of economic uh, value for these rights. You can look for, in the offering documents, you can look for additional information and details on, on how exactly to do this. But again, if there's any takeaway, it would be to do something. Either subscribe or sell the shares and receive some value. With that, I want to turn to uh, a number of the questions that have come in. And I think the first one we'll start off with. Okay. Um, Ron, let, let's let's okay. give it to you here. Under a normal normal market cycle, what can we expect? What's in a reasonable expected return for utilities under a normal market cycle? Okay. Well, when we focus on utilities, the um, two factors which are going to drive the return are the uh, earnings growth together with the dividend and the dividend growth. And we see the majority of quality utilities have the ability to grow their earnings in the 5 to 6 to 7% rate over an extended period of time. And at the same time, they, they have a well-defined dividend policy, which, uh, you know, leads them to periodically evaluate the level of their dividend and more often than not that it's tied to the dividend growth rate. So given uh, a stable P.E. ratio, you know, we look to a high single-digit return from uh, just the earnings and dividend growth. And then uh, given that these are equities, and when you're managing a portfolio of equities, uh, if you pay attention, you do have opportunities to buy and sell uh a portion of your position, trade around your core positions, and hopefully add some uh, value there. You know, currently we're in an environment of little or no inflation, 2% uh, yields on the 10-year Treasury. So uh, in a world where we are at the present time, I'd say a 6 to 7% annual return uh, justifies making the investment. Yeah, and I would just I would just add to put that into some context. Um, we take that uh, that combined dividend yield and earnings growth trajectory. You have to remember these stocks have a beta of about 0.5. Um, so for the broad market to add, you know, alpha over utilities or vice versa, you know, you really have to get a mid-teens return out of the out of the stock market to have something comparable on a risk-adjusted basis. 
you think that's going to happen, um, then, you know, maybe that risk-reward isn't attractive. But it, 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 it certainly seems that way to us. Yeah. And we we're speaking to utilities here, but, uh, you know, remember our definition of utilities includes cable and uh, towers and so on. And so in those cases, you we do see, you know, uh, higher earnings and cash flow growth rates than in your traditional utilities. John, I have one for you here. Um, what type of institutions are investing in these assets, in, I guess infrastructure in general, and uh, like a follow-up to it? And also, have you gotten any, or do you tend to get any pushback uh, from consultants? Well, let me, let me just start. You know, obviously, we it's difficult to know who owns what at any given time, but we, we kind of have our arms wrapped around the elephant a little bit. Um, you know, retail always has a big role in these stocks, and if you look at the market capitalization of the sector spider versus the um, market capitalization of the S&P uh, 500, uh, utilities always have more market cap in the, um, in the, in the utilities ETF. So I, I, I infer from that that there's a, uh, there's a asymmetric retail presence. Um, you know, our, our founder, Bill Reeves, always used to joke that people always look for an excuse not to like utilities. And, and that's, that's still very much true. And I, I think people out in the audience probably recognize that investment managers have a bias towards having um, data above, above one because markets tend to, um, tend to go up and, and, and not down. And as a consequence of that, you can, you can generate excess returns, nominal returns, by, by adding beta. That leaves utilities um, left in the laundry basket of a lot of, uh, of, a, lot of uh, a lot of investment managers. And um, you know, when we kind of look to where we were at the end of the year, uh, again, we have public dis- we have public information, um, but it's it's hard to to really get a sense of things. But a lot of a lot of ink was spilled to talk about at the end of the year that uh, utilities had uh, had really achieved record under ownership by active managers. You know, utilities have performed well this year. I, I, I do believe that, uh, that that some of that has abated, but but generally speaking, um, they're they're not they're not typically uh, over owned or equal owned by uh, by active managers. As far as consultants go, you know, consultants always struggle with um, with listed infrastructure because you know it's it, it, it's hard for them to label it. Um, I find it actually somewhat amusing that uh, that MLPs have been sort of accorded this special out- asset class outside of uh, um, outside of equities that they're not even really considered equities anymore. They're considered uh, an asset class under themselves. I think that's silly because because frankly, MLPs at the, in, in the in the final analysis are truly equities. Um, so as you can tell from my comments, I kind of yearn for something like that uh, out, of, out of listed listed infrastructure. Is that going to happen someday? I, I don't know, but it, it certainly should. Next question, I guess it's very timely here, um, given the catastrophe we had down in Houston, and now we have another hurricane about to hit, uh, it was hitting the Caribbean, it's about to hit Florida, and I believe there's another one right behind that, Hurricane Jose. Uh, historically, how have utilities done during hurricane season? Well, uh, generally speaking, the uh, utilities that tend to get hit by, uh, by hurricanes the most are, are generally the most prepared to, de- to deal with it. Um, all utilities, uh, remember, utilities are not necessarily in competition with, with one another. And so they all have um, mutual assistant contracts. And when, when a hurricane comes and, and things get knocked over, um, 
utility workers from all over the country will come down to uh, to participate. And uh, you know, there there there's certain segments of uh, of those guys who love to do it. It's it's extra overtime. It's uh, it's good money. And at the end, uh, the utility will collect all the invoices from these guys, present it to their regulator, and they'll get recovery. Now, if the costs are, are truly substantial, remember what I said about rate stability, um, the utility and the regulator will often come to some kind of terms about how those, how those expenses can be, uh, be, be spread out over time. Um, you know, Irma itself is going to be a, a, a real cataclysm for a lot of people, um, but I'm actually kind of excited for, uh, for Florida Power and Light. Uh, they really are the best uh, managed utility in the country, and um, I think of all the utilities out there to deal with 185-mile-an-hour wind, um, it, it, it's probably them. And I think that they have the opportunity to recover in a way that's going to stand in, uh, in stark contrast um, to the way that, uh, you know, maybe other utilities have in the past and, and, and maybe even themselves. Last hurricane system, uh, last hurricane season, they did a, did a fantastic job. So I, I'm not really particularly worried about uh, Florida Power and Light. Um, and, uh, again, I think it'll be interesting to see what uh, all the work that they've done to harden their system against storms can do. Did they, is there a hurricane You know, the market tends to look through these events. Um, you know, there have been situations where uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, bankrupted uh, the New Orleans utility. Um, and so the, uh, the utility, the parent company, suffered a bit uh, because there was some uncertainty as to how they were going to recover those costs. Uh, but they did ultimately, and they, they, they kind of came through. So it was really more a question of uncertainty as opposed to, you know, the market pricing in specific levels of damage. Well, unfortunately, we're not going to have time to get to any more of these questions. We apologize if we did not get to your question. But I think we did handle in quite a lot of detail about the markets. We hope you enjoyed this presentation here. For those that are shareholders of the Reeves Utility Income Fund, again, the rights offering will expire on close of business October 4th. So, uh, again, if we want you to take away anything regarding the rights, it's to do some sort of action. Either subscribe or sell your rights, receive some value for those rights. Uh, with that, we're going to pretty much sign off here. Uh, this, I believe this will be made available uh, on the Capital Link website in uh, several hours. So we thank you for your time today, and have a great day. This will conclude our webinar for today. Please disconnect.